Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we discuss the latest news from Ukraine, analyze the Russian Victory Day parade from Moscow, and talk to our economics reporter about the Russian economy, which still teeters on the brink of default. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 9th of May, day 75. And today, I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Deputy Foreign Editor Theo Mers, and our economics reporter, Louis Ashworth. I started by asking Theo for his reaction to this morning's victory parade in Moscow. Tom Nichols was away from the office for most of today, trading the corridors of power in Westminster, so he could only join us briefly at the beginning of the podcast. Well, Dom and I were watching the parades all the way through this morning. And the, the thing of note is that there wasn't a, a mobilisation or there wasn't a, a change in the course of the war that we saw from Putin's speech on, on Red Square, which is something that some analysts had thought uh, might have happened, that he might have made some big tactical announcement. But what actually happened in the end uh, is what tends to, tends to happen on, on Victory Day. He talked about the Russia's victory over the Nazis and uh, drew parallels with uh, fighting in, in the present day or with Russia's battles in the in the present day, whether that's with a hostile West or, or in Ukraine. What was noticeable from what he said this time was that the, the real emphasis on the, the current fighting aggression from NATO, Russia, Russia he said, would, had entered into talks uh, with, the, with the West in, in good faith and it hadn't been properly listened to. And he repeated what he's been saying all along, that this was a, a forced move, uh, or Russia, Russia didn't want to do this, but it was forced into it by the, by the West. So nothing surprising, but just really notable that he was, he was there at this event ostensibly to mark uh, victory over Nazism. There are still uh, veterans of the, the Red Army, uh, the Soviet Army alive, who, who were there, who he did... He did honour and he did uh, note their, their contribution to, 
to the to victory in in 1945 but really the emphasis was entirely on what is going on in Ukraine and I think in in terms of the military that we saw there or perhaps the military that we didn't see there it's best for for Dom to speak on that yeah so we 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 were expecting uh, about a third uh, down in terms of equipment numbers from last year um and I think that was that was very evident uh, for, from the from the ground equipment certainly um but also the the air component of the parade was entirely absent now we were told very shortly before the parade started we were told that this was because of bad weather um i mean the weather looks it was a it was a it was a bright day there was some some big puffy clouds which might have been i suppose you could say there was a, a threat of a thunderstorm somewhere which i know um, Air Force types don't like flying anywhere near. So, but, yeah, possibly. But there is the speculation that actually the the spectacle of a much reduced air fleet and what there was would have been the old MiG-31s might, might not have looked good. So air component was completely absent. Uh, on the ground, there were, there were very few vehicles. Um, we saw the T-14 again. I don't know if we can keep, keep calling it the new T-14 because we first saw it in 2015 at the Victory Day Parade. But this is the, this is the next super-duper tank from Russia. But it's never gone into mass, mass production. So it might be the, might be the new tank, but it, it still isn't in regular service. So yeah, it's just the showroom model. I don't think we can, we can start pointing at any great um, capability there. Uh, we also saw the... Um, well, as we see, we saw some new uh, un, uh, un, uh, un, unattended ground vehicles with weapons. Uh, fine, you know, some more experimental stuff. Not not seeing them in service yet, um, and and other, otherwise it was just the usual thing. It was a, it was a small number of tanks, a bit of air defence systems. I had the Yars intercontinental ballistic missile out again, um, but it was it was very it was much reduced in number. Um, I think there was only one of the T14s, for example, and a, and a few, a handful of uh, of T72 uh, and T90 variants. So so markedly down on what we'd expect uh, normally in any normal year, uh, and that's partly because of the numbers that have been sent to Ukraine, and partly because of the numbers that that have, have not come back from Ukraine, not able to come back from Ukraine. But again, I mean, these things are, are taken to be partly um, celebrating the the endeavours of the Second World War generation. And that, yeah, that's fine. That's to be applauded. Anyone who fights against Nazis gets my vote. But it's also to showcase up-and-coming equipment, new equipment, as I've, as I've just described. But of course, what, what it's completely... It can't answer at the moment is that having, having the kit is just one thing. There's, there's, another, there's a whole, whole range of stuff you've got to do to be able to fight it effectively. And the Russian army has shown itself to not be able to fight effectively in, in Ukraine. So you can, you can trot out as many T-14 as you like and as uh, uh, all the other you know, new infantry fighting vehicles and what have you and these, these robotics and that's great but, but I'm not going to you know, forgive me if I'm not going to quake in my boots and say oh, gosh what, a, what an amazing military the, the, the Russians have I'll pause it on the equipment there were some, there were some other um, <laughs> I was engaging Theo and I engaging in sort of amateur Kremlinology this morning there's some other uh, bits and pieces I think of note on that but I'll take a pause there Thanks very much, Dom. Um, Theo, what else has been, away, away from the Victory Parade and back to the battlefront in Ukraine, what's been happening over the past few days that our listeners uh, should, uh, should be aware of? Um, well, there was, there was a strike on a school uh, yesterday in which we, we think 60 people might have been killed. There's battles still ongoing there. The um, Azov-style plant that we were talking about a lot last week in, in Mariupol, this, this last holdout has, has yet to 
to fully fall to, which is is really quite in, incredible. And also for the the Ukrainian side, celebrate this this victory day as well because it's a, it's a Soviet victory on on May the May the ninth. It's celebrated all across the the former Soviet Union. So we saw a, a victory day speech from Zelensky yesterday, and, and more comments on on this today. And it was it's really noticeable how. Um, the 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 contrast between his speech and and Putin's in that he came out in a in a black t-shirt speaking or or imposed in front of a, a bombed out building and uh, comparing the the Russians to Nazis Putin of course is is saying that he's fighting Nazis in in Ukraine but um, Zelensky saying that we have survived this type of aggression before and we we will do do again so both of them really explicitly evoking memories and the the losses of the the second world war to to get their case and it's it's been really interesting yesterday and and today just to see how much history from from that period is is shaping this this conflict now and how they're both uh, Zelensky and Putin are both using this to 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 bolster their own narratives or at least Zelensky is is Telling Putin that he doesn't have a monopoly on on the Soviet history and, and reminding Ukrainians and, and the world how much Ukraine suffered under this occupation and is suffering now. Thanks, Theo. Could you tell us a little bit about um, Patron? This is the famous uh, Ukraine's famous mind-sniffing dog who was honoured yesterday uh, during uh, during Justin Trudeau's visit visit to Ukraine. Um, how did he get so famous? What does he do? Oh yeah, this is fun. Um, we wrote, the Telegraph wrote about him a few weeks ago. I think in in mid April that he is a mind sniffing dog. So um, huge amounts that there there's huge amounts of Ukraine that has been that has been mined now. I, th- I can't remember the exact figure because this was a while ago. But the UN I think said that around a third of the country would have to be checked for mines once the once the the war is over and our correspondents have already been out with um with people clearing the clearing mines and uh, clearing uh, weaponry out of civilian areas that cleanup is already happening outside kiev but patron this this dog has been has been part of the rescue efforts and has been written about in the international media and then he was awarded for his canine bravery yesterday as he saved by Zelensky. So that is a um, a rare moment of levity, I suppose, uh, joy in in this conflict, and it's that that is something that that Ukraine does very well, seizing on seizing on those moments that can sort of um, that can, I, I, I suppose, cut through all the the terrible and, and horrific news that we are that we are hearing from it, hearing from this conflict. Thanks, Theo. Is there anything else that's happened over the over the weekend and this morning uh, that you think would be useful for for us to know? I think also these comments from uh, uh, Don would be better placed to to speak on this, but I think he has dropped off the the conversation. These comments from from Ben Wallace, uh, our defence uh, secretary, um, that play that uh, not play into but reflect. The, this, these conversations around the the Second World War, he was saying that he was comparing Putin's actions to to Nazism and uh, calling for 
the the Putin regime to suffer ultimately the the same fate as as Nazism. I, this the humiliating defeat that they or sort of definitive defeat that they that they did suffer. And this, those were comments yesterday, and today he was saying that, uh, that Putin is is living in a fairy tale with this, with this narrative of the Second World War and comparing, um, comparing the the fight in Donbass now to the or, or the wider or wider Ukraine to the fight against the the Nazis. So those uh, th- those comments are probably worth mentioning as well. Thanks very much, Theo. Um, at this point, I'd like to invite our uh, economics reporter, Louis Ashworth, into the conversation. Louis, you've written a, f- a fascinating piece um, on how Russia is still teetering on the edge of default. We know that it's um, narrowly swerved, um, tumbling into its first international default in a century last week. Um, but you think it's, it's still in huge trouble. Can you tell us why? Yeah, so uh, as, you, as you discussed last week with my colleague Louise, um, there was this sort of looming Russian default that uh, we thought might happen that week. It was averted in, in the case. Uh, Russia sort of tapped up um, its sort of limited uh, domestic funds in order to make the, make two payments that it had to make on overdue bonds. Um, so it was able to avoid it in that instance. But what's kind of happened here is that we've just sort of delayed what might now look inevitable. I think the the wide view, speaking to analysts and looking at the sort of the the dynamics that we've, we've seen develop in this kind of financial war that the West has launched against Russia, is that it's really a matter of, of if not when with with a default. So the, the kind of crucial thing to understand here is, and this is something that was obviously emphasised a lot when the conflict first began, is Vladimir Putin has spent a lot of time getting Russia onto a war footing from an economic perspective. So one of the most important things about that is Russia is, from a fiscal perspective, an extremely solid economy, especially for an economy of the kind of size it is. I mean, often, you know, uh, Russia is in a category uh, you would describe as, as emerging markets if you were if you were sort of a, an, an, a sort of markets covering person. Um, several other countries that are in that category have you know persistent issues with debt they have uh, very unstable economies they have uh, persistent problems with their currencies these aren't really issues for russia russia has been has been very fiscally conservative it's been very controlled in the way that it's borrowed and spent money on a government level over over um over recent years um and especially sort of over the past of two decades since since putin came to power and it's it's very healthy in the sense that it has such large incomes from oil and gas that it's able to to have that sort of excellent um, you know uh, surplus in its current account uh, that creates this this big sort of stability. So the thing to understand from that is that Russia, although it's lost access to a lot of its a lot of its um, uh, foreign foreign exchange stockpile, so it came into this war with about six hundred forty billion dollars worth of uh, assets that included foreign currencies and gold. About half of that was frozen by the West when the when the war first started in what was a sort of huge, unprecedented move and is, is very important for understanding some of the wider economic context here. But there is still quite a lot of money left and Russia's debts are not that big. So on a on a sort of functional level, Russia is capable of making these payments. Where this becomes so interesting is that the actual real decider here is a thing called the Office for Foreign Asset Control, which is part of the US Treasury. So what the Office for Foreign Asset Control does basically is when the US introduces sanctions of any kind, I mean, obviously, you know, there are plenty of sanctions on Russia, but the US has various financial sanctions on people all across the world. The Office for 
asset control is the one that kind of enforces them, monitors them, comes up with new ones. They, at present, have a system in place whereby foreign holders of Russian debt can continue to receive payments on that debt until the 25th of May. So the crucial thing that's coming up now is Russia is due to make another tranche of payments on its international debts on the 27th of May. But two days before that, a this this uh, this mm-hmm. allowance from the Office for Foreign Asset Control to let them make payments may lapse. So it's created a very weird situation because essentially, if uh, if uh, OFAC, this organisation, decides to uh, to drop the exemption and and ban bondholders from receiving money from Russia, Russia will automatically default. There there will be. There will be no functional way that that Moscow can make those payments to their international bondholders. They will then be considered to have defaulted on those bonds, and uh, and yeah, they're within the state of default. So it's created a very very sort of weird weird situation. Uh, I mean, I was speaking to some uh, sort of um, emerging market analysts last week and economists who are basically saying the situation from here is you know does there reach a point where Joe Biden's White House says you know what? It's it's more important for us that Russia defaults than it is that, uh, that these bondholders get these payments. And at that point, will they just say, nope, cut them off, disallow the payments, and Russia will fall into default? So that's why we're still we're still on the on the kind of cusp here, and it's why, despite last week, things are still very much in the air over this. I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating. So they, as you've written, they are sort of at the mercy of uh, a wing of the U.S. Treasury. I mean, I'd be interested to hear Theo's take on this as well, that that I mean, how does Russia and, and you, of course, Louis, as well, how, how does Russia extricate itself from this position? Or is it, is it at this point just not possible to? In, in a sense, it's impossible. Now, this is because uh, one thing that this complex has really emphasized and driven home is just how dominant the dollar is in terms of the international financial system. I mean, we hear a lot of talk, especially recently, with these ideas of sort of financial balkanization, that we could see, you know, China, Russia begin to sort of hew themselves off from the international financial system and create their own systems. That may be something that happens. And clearly, this war has in some ways accelerated that process that was already occurring to some extent. But for now, the, the dollar rules the world. There, there is, there is, the, the, the dollar is so integral to so many elements of the financial system that if you control the dollar, which, of course, if you're the United States, you have the, for- the great fortune of doing, you really can control a huge amount of what is what is possible. Um, and in this instance, it basically means that, yeah, the, the US can, if it wants to, engineer what you could describe as an artificial default. And there's not really anything that Russia can do about it. Now, that is itself an interesting thing, because defaults have to be understood on sort of two levels. You have both the, the, the technical level of a country being put in default, which might, um, which, which, which has its own effects, and then you have the, the reputation side of it. So on the technical side, what will occur is there'll be lots of you know, asset managers, banks, maybe funds that will say to their clients, you know, we are a, we are a you know, reliable, dependable bank. We are, you know, one of Wall Street's biggest banks, and we only buy... Uh, foreign debt if it's of a certain you know, certain rating we won't we won't buy foreign debt that's not going to pay through and this is all part of a sort of complicated process of how uh, how sort of funds are built and how assets are managed if russia goes into default and is deemed to have defaulted by by international ratings agencies like moody's like s&p global there will be lots of um 
lots of these big these companies that manage huge amounts of money that will not be allowed to invest in Russia anymore. That that will simply be against the terms that they've agreed with their investors or their own their own sort of compliance terms. Um, and it will become impossible. That obviously, as we discussed earlier, that may not matter that much for the Russian government because the Russian government doesn't need foreign debt that much. If there is a spillover uh, in which uh, a country, uh, you have a company that say has a rule that says, okay, if Russia is in default, we also can't buy any bonds belonging to any Russian companies, then you get a severe impact because Russian companies are very reliant on international markets for funding. And if they if they lose that access, it could potentially be be very damaging. Now that's sort of the the, the technical side of it. The reputational side is a is another interesting one because it it sort of cuts in two ways. Interestingly, the, the first one being that of course Russia is you know this is something that um, a, a, a investor, an investor said to me last week. It's it's a it's prior. I mean you know it's it, Russia has been hugely cut out of the Western financial system and it is. You know, its, its reputation could not be lower as as a as a country that is sort of respectable, is true to its word, is 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 a reliable is, is sort of a reliable um, partner in that sense. So that is that's that that's sort of important, but also not important because defaulting your debts isn't going to make anyone think like, oh, that's the final straw. You know, I was I was fine with all the other stuff that happened, but now they're defaulting on the debts. That truly is reprehensible. Clearly, that impact is also going to be lessened quite a lot by the fact that this default looks like it will be artificial when it occurs. People, people, people may argue, and I'm certain Russia will argue, that they, you know, they've made their best efforts to make these payments, and therefore the default can't be considered to be uh, sort of a, a real default, if, if that makes sense. And that, I'm sure that's an argument they'll make as they attempt to sort of rebuild their reputation on international markets as and when we're past this conflict. Um, the other side of it is there may be quite a lot of keenness from international markets to rehabilitate Russia because, as I said earlier on, Russia is a has been a fiscally well managed economy. It rakes in huge amounts of money through through oil and gas sales. Obviously, there's a whole other question there about how long it's going to be able to continue to do that if there is a genuine concerted effort to, to for the for the West to wean itself off those energy supplies. But it will it will be it will be there will, there will be elements of the uh, of the overseas investment market that will be very keen when they can to start buying Russian debt again because Russia is a reliable pair of its debt and uh, and it will be interesting to see what uh, what impact that that dynamic has. I'm, I'm certain there will be stories in the sort of coming years. Of people who will be very keen to get back into buying Russian debt, and I imagine that will become a very interesting issue from a kind of uh, sort of ethics and perception perspective, because it's likely to be considered, uh, you know, don't touch the Russian debt. You know, Russia needs to be a pariah for a while longer. But uh, if there's if there's a dollar to be made, people will people will be trying to make it. So, if I mean, if Russia does default, what could we could we sort of look forward a little bit and ask? And ask you what what does that actually look like on the ground? What's what starts to happen? How does the economy start to implode? How would it actually go down? You know, in real time. The after after a default begins, typically countries will then go and the usual process is they will go to the IMF. They will try and come up with some kind of process to restructure their debt. Uh, they will normally do so in exchange for an agreement to institute a bunch of different policies. Typically speaking, these have been austerity policies in various countries in the past. 
in Russia, I think we're going to see something different because uh, Russia is so sort of disconnected now. I'm sure it won't want to work with the IMF. And also it, it won't need to restructure its debt in the same way because it doesn't have the huge amounts of debt. It's not a it's not a sort of Argentina type situation in which it genuinely can't pay. It's that it will have been rendered unable to pay. So the 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 bigger impact further down the line will be when Russia and potentially as a, as a, as a consequence, Russia's corporations go to borrow in the future, it will be, they will meet a very hostile market. They'll meet a market that demands a very, uh, you know, higher, higher, could be, because of the nature of debt borrowing, you, you essentially, you, you give someone money in exchange you know, on the agreement, they will pay you back a certain amount. The, the amount that people will ask for back will be higher, will be much higher as a result of this conflict. Investors will come to Russia and say, I need serious guarantees or, or I need I need a, so, sort of something very, very good to sweeten this deal. Otherwise, I'm not going to lend you money because, you know, uh, because you're unreliable, because it's a reputational risk to my company. Uh, for, you know, for, for, for those sort of reasons, they, they will they will want a lot more um, sort of bang bang for their buck. Um, the that then feeds through into everything. As soon as as soon as uh, that kind of borrowing becomes more expensive, you'll begin to see uh, you know, borrowing fall. Therefore, investment falls. Therefore, growth fall, growth falls. Um, uh, Tim Ash, who's a very smart sort of um, uh, emerging market strategist, um, at Blue Bay Asset Management, said to me. Uh, there'd be a very long-term impact of higher borrowing costs, lower investment, lower growth, lower living standards, probably for a good five to 10 years if Russia went into default. So that's the kind of idea of the sort of scope we're looking at. Is it may be a sort of a, a very a very difficult kind of decade in which the cost of doing business in Russia goes up. And we have to bear in mind that Russia is already experiencing severe inflationary pressures. I mean, inflation obviously is, is very high everywhere at the moment, but you know, in Russia it's at nearly 20%, which is you're hitting the kind of levels there where you know, civil unrest, etc., can't be ruled out. I mean, obviously, this kind of how people react to these kind of things is, is very idiosyncratic to different societies. And some, 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 you know, some countries you get incredibly high inflation, and the government's overthrown. In Russia, it may be an entirely different situation. Um, but that's the kind of thing we're looking at. It's that sort of long-term pain um that that russia is is going to experience and the, the actual process of just being rehabilitated onto onto global debt markets might be sort of up to, i think typically about three years is about how long it takes before you can even begin to tap those markets again russia as i said maybe a little bit quicker because people will be so keen to lend the money potentially but um yeah we're looking at a you know, up to up to a sort of a, a potentially miserable decade for 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 russian for for russian companies and the russian economy if they lose access to this stuff. Theo, you've been listening. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on any of this. Yeah, I was, I was thinking it's, it's so great to hear, hear all of that and that detailed uh, economic analysis uh, because I, I know we were talking about how sanctions were affecting the Russian economy at the start of the conflict when they were first brought in. But on the, in the foreign section, I know you've been doing this in, in business, but for, in terms of foreign news, we haven't been focusing on that so much and haven't been focusing on the impacts on, on ordinary Russians. So it's great to, to hear about that. And I was thinking about what you were saying about sort of how Russia might react to this and whether there might be civil unrest and whether this does actually pose a, a sort of existential uh, problem to the 
the Putin regime. You're talking about the idios, uh, uh, idiosyncrasies b- between different countries. I think in Russia, it's much less likely that there would be a political uprising than there, there than elsewhere. But precisely because of the measures that Putin has been taking taking over the last decade, this real uh, uh, crackdown on on civil society, as we know, Alexei Navalny, the most prominent opposition politician in in Russia, has been has been jailed, and then at the grassroots, really sort of small and seemingly uh, insignificant organisations across Russia has been targeted, so that there are, there's no obvious. Uh, organization that can uh, that can organize uh, that can sort of rally rally people onto the streets even if inflation is going up at this incredible rate and living standards and um, living standards are going down so it is it is hard to see how that would happen also today um Putin was talking a lot, as he always does on Victory Day, about the the Russian or the Soviet national psyche and how victory is is part of that, and how um, sort of the way Russian society has has been shaped in part by that victory over Nazi Germany. But also, the national psyche, if if there is such a thing, has been shaped by economic collapse after economic collapse or or hardship we saw most people I think most people I'm not sure if the exact demographic um, breakdown in Russia now but uh, millions of Russians will uh, remember the complete economic collapse uh, following the the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, default in 1998 as well Um, and then more recently the sanctions that were brought in over Crimea and waves of sanctions since then so it's not that even even before um, these latest round of of sanctions and this threat of of default that you that you talk about it's not that the economy was in a, a wonderful situation before and it's not that and living standards were were going down there was a squeeze on disposable incomes and a squeeze on the middle classes and that did not really translate into a, a visible or organised movement against the the Putin regime. So I think, um, in terms of threats to to the the Kremlin that that this might that this might cause, I think it's much more likely to be um, something from inside the the Russian elite that they decide that Putin has become too much of a liability or that he is taking them in the the wrong direction, rather than. The, the grassroots protests that we, that we might see elsewhere. And Theo, just on that, you've been, you, I, I mean, I know from your, from your work covering Russia for, for years and, and speaking Russian, you've seen a lot of these parades. Um, how, did, how did this year's one, um, what did it look like in comparison to the other years? Did you pick up on anything that was especially different or stood out? It was hard to tell not being in, in Moscow now. It's hard to get the... It's hard to get the the feeling from from the ground, and unfortunately, like a lot of Western media now, we don't have our own permanent correspondent there for for security reasons. I, I, I did call a, a couple of friends in in Moscow this morning just to say how strange this is all happening, and uh, or sort of or to, or talk about what talk about the news and sort of ask them 
what the the mood is there and they are I, they are not peace in supporters they they're, they're not they're in a in a minority apparently in Russia if we're to believe opinion polls from from there but they they were both sort of so uh, depressed by by what is happening and one of them said this is it really feels like I'm in the the USSR and even I mean even though they're not they're not peace and supporters and even though they're not sort of they're they're no fans of sort of Russian military might. They they tend, like most Russians, to have a good time on on Victory Day because it's still a public holiday. Even if you don't watch the parade, even if you don't see Putin's speech on TV, you still have the day off work. You'll still probably go out drinking with your friends in the afternoon and maybe watch the fireworks in the evening. But at, at least from amongst opposition-minded uh, Muscovites, of which there are there are many. Um, even if you, you aren't really able to see that from from the Russian media, um, it's a, a very depressing and a, and a very worrying time. I mean, from from what we see on TV, it's similar to to every year. As Don was saying earlier, fewer fewer tanks, um, less equipment on on display. Uh, but in in terms of the uh, what Putin is saying, the the soldiers that we're seeing. It looks like it is um, like it has been for for the last for the last few years, and it's it's hard to tell um, it's hard to tell from the outside uh, how what the mood on the the ground is. Though we actually uh, should be getting some some reporting on that later. Thanks, dear. Um, Louis, we've you've spoken a lot and in great detail. I think we're hugely appreciative for that on the Russian economy and the impacts on the Russian economy. But of course, the war is having a huge impact also on the Ukrainian economy. Um, can you? But obviously, the country is in a slightly different position, I mean, backed by many Western powers. So, can you just talk us through what the war, how the war has impacted the economy, and uh, what its prospects are for the next few months and years? Sure, of course, yeah. And actually, uh, one interesting thing that's come on actually just whilst we've been discussing on on, on the Russian front is um, uh, Bloomberg's just been reporting on some uh, leaked estimates for the damage that's being done to the Russian economy. Uh, apparently, Russia's finance ministry thinks it may be a hit of up to. Twelve um, percent of its GDP, uh, which would be the, the it would make it the worst year in about three decades for the Russian economy. So, it'd be very interesting to see um, how how things play out on that front. Clearly, a severe hit is occurring. Twelve um, percent is staggeringly huge, but uh, we, we'll have to see. Um, yes, on, on on the Ukraine front, there's sort of two main questions for Ukraine. Um, one of which is less important than the other. The, 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 the things, the questions are over the, the damage and the default. So I'll actually maybe dispatch the default more quickly because it's probably the smaller issue. Now, Ukraine has had total foreign debts of about $130 billion at the end of last year. Um, it had been expected to repay about $14 billion in debt this year. Clearly, that is not going to happen. Ukraine does not have the capacity right now to be paying off debts to foreign bondholders and it's pretty likely that at some point during this year it will it will default um it owes money as well as to some some international investors it owes uh, you know about 8.4 billion to the world bank um 17 billion from the imf uh 13 billion euros from the european commission so it owes it owes money to a lot of sort of major western institutions uh the crucial thing on that front is that clearly ukraine has the has the full it has the faith and support of of the West to a large extent. Now, 
maybe not as much as you might hope. Now we, we saw a lot of money, especially in the in the run up to the to the invasion and directly afterwards being sent to Ukraine. A lot of that, you know, may have seemed like, oh, you know, they're being invaded, send them money, send them support. It was actually a little bit more mercenary than that. There were there were strings attached to quite a few of the particularly the early tranches of money that were being sent there. The, the money that was being sent directly just as funding rather than sort of in some other aid form. So, for instance, the, uh, the European Union uh, sent sent Ukraine uh, several billion euros just ahead of the invasion, um, and there were strings attached. They they said that it needed to be repaid with interest, and also that Ukraine had to make certain policy changes. Um, these can vary. Almost always, policy changes involve inflicting some kind of fiscal austerity on a society. That tends to be that tends to be what um, what lenders ask for in exchange for their money is is some kind of guarantee that the the economy is going to be reorientated in a way that uh, makes them more likely to receive their payouts. Um, the great tragedy of that basically is that almost always ends up meaning that the poorest people in society are those who are most most punished. Um, so yeah, large large debts in Ukraine, lots of money to repay. Some you know not not hugely favourable conditions for the money that they've borrowed. Um, they probably will default. Uh, whether that matters that much is it's a pretty academic point. The 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 default will trigger some of those sort of technical processes that I spoke about with Russia earlier. I mean, there will be some people who will be because of the rules of investment that they play by will be banned from investing in Ukraine one way or another or from buying Ukrainian debt as a result of a default. But I suspect there will be a widespread willingness to kind of wipe the slate clean and basically, you know, be practical about it. You know, the, the Western Western financial institutions will recognize that Ukraine would would not have been able to make these payments and will, I would imagine, be very forgiving over over, over these debts. Um, so it may be that uh, either there's a default and in, in a sort of in kind of a similar way to how the Russian one may be sort of thought of differently. The Ukrainian one may not be thought of as a default at all um, in terms of how big international institutions organize it. Then it may be that uh, some some other sort of you know, Western asset managers create some kind of Ukraine exemption. Um, uh, so we'll kind of have to see how that will play out. But I think there'll be a lot of willingness to to very quickly rehabilitate Ukraine and, you know, it's sort of it's, it's, it's not your fault kind of attitude will be taken on it. That being said, I mean, one of the I spoke earlier about how, you know, when the, a huge important part of this is is the financial motivations of the different parties involved. And, you know, in the aftermath of this conflict, the fact will be that, you know, in a horribly cynical, jaded way, that is the way that financial markets often work. Russia will still be a better place to to lend money to than Ukraine, almost certainly, because Ukraine's economy, for all the help the West might give it, is still going to have big long-term structural issues. Um, and it, it may well be that the amount of support they get from the West is not sufficient to uh, to sort of suddenly make them. They're not going to suddenly become a great creditor overnight because they are... Um, sorry, um, a, great, a great borrower overnight because they uh, because they have received all this western support they're still gonna have problems whereas on the flip side russia is still going to be probably a country that runs an excellent current account surplus and is able to to make good on its payments so an odd dynamic there and again i think we're, we're going to see some sort of um there's going to be 
some clashes on an ethical front, I'm, I'm quite sure, uh, that will come up in, in the coming years. Um, so that's sort of the, the default side of it, which in a sense, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still interesting, but it's kind of sort of academic in a kind of similar way to, to the Russian one. Um, uh, the, the, the bigger side is the, the, the sort of damage side of it. Now, the, the, um, the Kiev School of Economics has been throughout this conflict trying to sort of put a put a tag on how much damage has been done. Um, I know Giles was speaking earlier about, you know, over the weekend another another school was destroyed. I mean, they have they have tried to calculate the total damage. I mean, it, the, the numbers are just extraordinary. I mean, they, they say damage to infrastructure in Ukraine is at about $92 billion, uh, um, of which $4.5 billion was in the last week alone. And the total economic losses are at uh, somewhere up to or even above $600 billion. So that's nearly 200 factories and enterprises have been destroyed, about 231 hospitals, uh, hundreds of schools, uh, in fact, thousands of schools, um, hundreds of bridges, uh, churches, cultural buildings. Uh, I mean, one, one figure they've got here is uh, that uh, 23.8 thousand kilometers of roads have been damaged and 33.7 million square meters of housing stock. So this is this is huge. I mean, th- th- this is long term damage that is extremely hard to, um, well, extremely expensive to 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 write. Um, on top of everything, at a time where because of global prices, it's extremely expensive to do any kind of infrastructure work. So, pain on two fronts there for for, for Ukraine, and there's a huge huge question over who's going to fund this now. Who's who's going to fund sort of fixing these issues? Um, one one that's been discussed a lot is I mentioned earlier this sort of Russian foreign war chest of about six hundred forty billion billion dollars worth of foreign ass, of, of foreign currency and gold, about half of which has been frozen by the West because it's in Western accounts. Um, there is a growing call uh, to um, to seize that money and channel it into Ukraine to try and try and fix this. Now it's it's a testament to how much damage has been done that 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 will only cover maybe half of the damage that's that's been estimated here but um there's clearly um, there's clearly um some impetus behind this idea uh joseph borrell who's the um EU's high representative of foreign policy was speaking to the financial times uh, just today and has said uh you know uh, he'd be very much in favor of of using these frozen funds to 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 help ukraine rebuild um, and there's a precedent for this. We've seen similar things happen in the past with um, uh, foreign assets held by Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I think as recently as uh, as last year, I believe, um, the US seized um, uh, Afghani foreign assets after the, Tal- after the Taliban um, took over and uh, used them elsewhere. I mean, Borrell again said... Um, we have the money in our pockets and someone has to explain to me why it is good for the Afghan money and not good for the Russian money. It's something that Brussels has looked at. Certainly there's been some investigation of whether it's possible to use reserves. Um, as so as things stand so far, we haven't actually heard any solid policy. Um, you know, th- there are several ways that could, that, that could work. It might be that, um, the money's made into a kind of pool for loans that Ukraine can then borrow from on very, at very favorable rates it might be pumped into Ukraine immediately as a grant. I, I doubt it would be the latter one because, um, as I said, Ukraine 
you, you companies companies countries will be very hesitant to just pump money into ukraine that there'll be a lot of hesitancy to do that especially at a time where a lot of countries are facing their own domestic economic pressures so a lot of questions over what what happens there but there's definitely some sort of growing drive to use some of russia's war chest for ukraine which obviously has a kind of um yeah there's a there's a poetic justice to that i suppose thanks louis and just because we're coming towards the end of our time i think um could you just lay this all out in the next few weeks what what should we expect from in 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 the uh, economic sphere of this conflict, just in general, what what are the big things our listeners should be should be looking out for? What's coming? What's coming down the track? Sure. So, obviously, uh, any prediction is going to be hugely contingent on what actually happens with the conflict. Uh, I, I know that there were um, obviously we we thought this conflict would be very short. Uh, there were times where we thought maybe it would be over by by today because of the symbolism of Russia wanting some kind of objective before this big sort of commemorative commemoration of the Second World War. Um, a lot could change depending on on what does and doesn't happen with the war. And I think discussions about uh, rebuilding Ukraine, rehabilitating Ukraine, will not take place. Um, they're taking place clearly, but they probably won't develop into substantial policy until we have a clearer sense of what the um, what the end game is for for Russia's invasion. So probably. I would say, um, going back to the beginning of our discussion, the big things to look out for might well be whether we're going to have this engineered default. So we might start to get signals from the US Treasury, from the White House, from US officials um, on, on whether they believe they will extend that exemption from the Office of Foreign Asset Control. Um, as, as I said earlier, it's, it's going to lapse on May the 25th, at which point Russia will basically be tipped into a sort of default by default um, it, it may be the case that uh, the US determines at that point that that is appropriate and that's what they want to happen, in which case we will sort of hear nothing and then Russia will be unable to make its bonds, there'll be a grace period and then probably in late June Russia will default. We may hear something different. They may extend that exemption and there may be an indication that uh, the US is happy to see Russia you know, drain its, drain its reserves and, uh, and continue making payments to the West. Um, I think we'll get a sense of that in the coming weeks. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.